All right, and we're live. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Way of the Truth Warrior. My name is David Whitehead, and a happy new year to you. It is now 2023, and who knows what this year has in store, although I'm ready to go for whatever. I hope you are as well. I'm going to be here covering it on these channels. So many great things planned uh, for this show and these various projects that I've been working on. So guys, I just want to open up this year with just uh, some gratitude for all of you for coming in, for showing up to these shows, for helping to share it out, for interacting with me on my social media, uh, both pro and con. We love you all. Uh, and for supporting my sponsors, uh, donations, and allowing me to continue this work. Uh, we need it now more in this alternative media space, more than ever, as the uh, the the doors are closing on many of our abilities to reach people, especially here in Canada, as they're pushing through bills to regulate the internet and all content. So uh, without your support, I would just be talking to myself. So I just want to say thank you to all of you for continuing to show up. And I've got a lot of fascinating information that I'm going to be covering as we go through this year. And today, I've got a very, very exciting guest. Uh, it was very synchronistic that he reached out to me. His name is Michael Laflemme, and he's an author, and he wrote a book about Atlantis and lost civilizations. And this has been a subject that I've been fascinated with for many years. Uh, we've done so many shows on this subject over at Unslaved, which is a, if you don't know about that, it's a premium show that I do with Michael Desarian, who's another researcher and author from Ireland, who's done a lot of work on it. He's written books on it. And we've had many guests talking about this just from different angles. And that's why I'm really curious to get uh, Michael LaFlemme's take on it. I've just been reading his book, and so far it's extremely well done. And this is a mystery. This is one of those things that it's endless the more you dig into it. I'm also going to ask his opinion about this new Tartaria concept that I'm still getting information on, but it lines up very well with the idea that we've had lost chapters to our history. Um, and so that's what we're here to do. Try to solve these mysteries, ask these questions and see what we can find out. So thanks for joining me for that. Before we get in and I introduce my guest, I just want to make a couple announcements. Let me just get my screen share ready to go here. Um, and actually maybe before the announcements, let me show you where you can go and check out this fine book. Um, you can go over to Kind or Amazon. The book is called visions of Atlantis reclaiming our lost ancient legacy. Uh, you can check it out there, the Kindle version, the the, the book version, whichever you like. Uh, it's really, really well done, and we'll get into all the details of this as we go with our guest. But before we jump into that, I just want to announce that I'm going to be doing a digital presentation live at the Anarchapulcal event of 2022, um, and they've got a stellar list of speakers and it's going to be awesome. I couldn't be there in person, unfortunately, but uh, I will be there in digital space. Does that count? So uh, you can go check it out. You can get advanced tickets right now, anarchapoco.com. Please support these events. They're featuring a wide uh, range of speakers. I'm not up there just yet. Look, they even got Ron Paul there. They got Dan Dix, Del Bigtree, Max Egan, Andrew Kaufman, Mark Passio, uh, Dr. Kerry Madej, Brendan Murphy. He's a friend of Unslaved. We've had him on many times. Colin Contrell. So many great uh, opinions and perspectives for you to consider. And everybody's aligned, even if everybody doesn't agree on everything, we're all aligned on the concept of freedom, pursuing the truth, and uh, answering the question of what we can do to deal with this tyranny. And I'm going to be presenting on, obviously, The Cult of the Medics, uh, which is the series that you can go get out, get right now for free. There's nine chapters 
I can't believe we're already nine into that series. Nine chapters available out of 12. Uh, you can go to cultofthemedics.com and get caught up on that. But in this particular Anarchapulco uh, presentation, I'm going to be including some stuff that I haven't included in any of my shows on it or any of the episodes. Obviously, much will also be a recap, but I've got some special nuggets just for this presentation. So go and support this event. Get your tickets in advance. Without people like you, these types of events and this kind of work couldn't happen. So anarchapulco.com for that. Uh, I just also want to get my uh, sponsor uh, in here. We've got a few different sponsors. And just so you guys know, if you support my sponsors, you support this show. And I do try to find the very best sponsors that I can. And right now, uh, I am uh, backed up by Rise Attire. Uh, they are really, really excited to be releasing a new clothing line. They have an amazing signature series for the entire Cult of the Medic series available that you can check out. It's all made in America, high quality material. They're amazing. The artwork is awesome. But they are also getting ready to release something special just for Chapter 9, which I haven't yet seen. I've only seen some of the mock-ups, and uh, so I can't wait to see what that's going to be. So definitely go and check those guys out. And you can also uh, upgrade your health in the new year. Take a proactive approach. Uh, mind, body, spirit, the whole thing. Uh, my sponsor here is Modare. They're a company that was uh, recommended by a really good friend. I tried them out. Uh, my wife and I tried it out, and they have phenomenal stuff. We have a great lean body system program. They got uh, high-level collagen. They got the liquid collagen. I've got all the write-ups here, all the backing, all the ingredients. They're very transparent, which is what I like because uh, not all the sponsors I've had have been that transparent. So uh, this is why I switched. Um, they got great multivitamins. If you're looking for multivitamins, competitive prices, but far better quality than you get at like Costco or anywhere else, uh, you know, in your local drugstores. Uh, they have mental clarity and energy products. They have also cleaning products that are not toxic. So um, go check that out. It's over at dwtruthwarrior.com forward slash shop. You can save 10 bucks just by letting them know that I sent you. You can check it all out at the links that are on this page. And they also have some extra deals there uh, for the new year. Uh, so that is pretty much it. What else have I been doing over on this site? It's kind of a recap of some of the stuff we did last year. We wrapped it up with chapter nine of Cult of the Medics. You can go watch it right on the page right there. Some really, really interesting shows. Uh, the, the documentary that I did on the truckers, the Canadian truckers. And of course, I at the end of the year, right, right, right under the line, I was able to get in the extraterrestrial question, which is part of my Truth Warrior Premium uh, package. You can go check that out um, over on my website. And if you just prefer to listen to the show, make sure to subscribe to either my iTunes or my Podbean. And all of the backlog archive of all my shows are, is over at Podbean, and uh, you can get it there. Or you can continue to check me out on Rumble, Rockfin, BitChute, all that good stuff. So that is all I wanted to share with you before we get into today's show. Let me just uh, give you guys a background on my guest if you've never heard of him. His name is Michael Laflem. He's a researcher, adjunct professor of history and philosophy, a columnist for the New Dawn magazine, a scuba diver, and a guitarist. He grew up in South Florida and attended the Harriet L. Wilkes Honors College and Florida State University, where he studied Western intellectual history and U.S. foreign policy. Visions of Atlantis, which is the book we're going to be talking about today, was his second history book after, the, after 2008's The Specter of Reason, the historicization of the Enlightenment, uh, which is a product of over seven years of research and a lifetime of reflection. 
He's also published numerous book reviews and articles for the online history archive of the 1960s kennedysandking.com website. Um, he's uh, author of The Destiny Betrayed and The JFK Assassination. And he's a consultant to the director Oliver Stone. And Michael was also a one-time research assistant for investigative journalist Whitney Webb while she was writing her best-selling two-part series, One Nation Under Blackmail. And he's also ghostwritten for authors of the History Press. So he's a man who delves in many different subjects, but the subject we're going to talk about today is one of my favorites, and it's the subject of Atlantis. So let's go ahead and bring him in. And there he is. Michael, Happy New Year, man. Thanks for reaching out. Loving the book so far. Lost civilizations. I mean, what more of a fascinating subject could we possibly pick to kick the year off here? So thank you so much for joining me and welcome to Truth Warrior, man. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, where should we begin with your journey with this subject? I mean, maybe that's a good place to start is what was it that made you go, oh, this isn't just a bunch of fairy mm. tales told by, you know, was it uh, Plato or Solon or whatever? There's something maybe more to it. You know, what got you fascinated into doing this research for this book? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, as a history professor for about 12 years, um, occasionally I would have to teach ancient history. And even though I studied modern history, sometimes I would teach uh, ancient history survey courses and things like this. And, you know, it never really made sense to me at an intuitive level, this idea that there's a simultaneous, spontaneous arrive, arrival of you know, comparatively advanced civilization um, out of essentially nothing and darkness. And I never really issue much further. Um, I reading uh, Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock about 15 years ago got me thinking more, uh, although he never, I don't believe explicitly says the word Atlantis. He suggests, of course, a pre-Diluvian society based on megalithic architecture. Um, but really for me, uh, believe it or not, it was a book uh, from, I believe, 1881, uh, Ignatius Donnelly, The Antediluvian World, you know, the one that everybody, there you go, the one that everybody loves to hate. And I say, well, hey, it's still in print 140 years later. So obviously it's, incredible. it's, an, it's an incredible book when you think about I mean, in 1881, for example, for him to do that research, uh, the only people that had talked about Atlantis essentially in the United States or Western world were the crew of the Challenger expedition in, I believe, 1877. They completed their survey of the Mid-Atlantic. And I found an article, actually, which is quite interesting. I don't hear it referenced often from their return voyage where they mapped the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and it's called Glimpses of Atlantis. And this is a scientific American article by oceanographers. And so he references that article in the Antediluvian world. And I think that probably got his wheels turning as well. And, you know, I was just shocked by, <clears throat> even though there are parts of that book that I, I take issue with, um, I understand his, his process because you know, he is trying to synthesize, you know, clues from an essentially a global culture that had its nucleus, perhaps in a mid-Atlantic island near the Azores. Um, but, you know, when people fault him for, oh, he finds Atlantis everywhere. Well, it's like, 
England is an island, but the influence of the British Empire is in India, it's in Africa, it's in Europe, it's right. in the United States. I'm speaking English. So people, I think, give him a hard time because, you know, even though he might have been looking for a geographic location, I think he was correct to look in Yucatan at the Nahuatl language. He was correct to look in the Pyrenees. Um, and what's astounding is when I started to plug in clairvoyant visions from people like Edgar Casey, Phyllis Schlemmer, specifically Frederick Oliver from the book A Dweller on Two Planets, that all of these accounts essentially corroborated things that Donnelly had found. Um, and most of those authors, maybe the later ones, had read The Antediluvian World. But, you know, when Frederick Oliver was writing his automatically written book, about a past life in 11,160 BC called A Dweller on Two Planets. Um, you know, that book, he may have gotten a copy of The Antediluvian World, but it's, it's, it's still, it's, it's so far beyond what Donnelly envisioned because Frederick Oliver is talking about high technology. He's talking about smartphones that can project images holographically. He's talking about essentially UAPs that can go through any medium, including the air, the water, that are entrained to a crystal. And, you know, this was the kind of missing piece of the puzzle that I had always, um, you know, felt was, was kind of compartmentalized because you had the, the ancient alien camp and nothing wrong with that. It's an important part of the saga. Then you had the pure, this is Edgar Cayce's version of Atlantis. This is you know, another psychic's version of Atlantis. And then you have these historical sources like Plato who, who don't mention any high technology. He mentions a Bronze Age civilization that has megalithic architecture, but that's not too far of a stretch of the imagination. Um, right, yeah. And so for me, the, the clairvoyant visions were the key to bridge the two or three genres because, for example, in Frederick Oliver's account, he says... Well, in 11,160 BC, specifically, we had reached the heights of technology that, you know, even we today, and he's writing from 1881, uh, can't even imagine, including all the things I just mentioned. But eight centuries later, around 10,300 BC, closer to the date Plato and others have pointed to Hancock for this destruction of global civilization, he says people had regressed to essentially barbarism and in, in his account and that the leadership had basically become these transhumanist elite that had dematerialized into essentially forms of electricity and had no use for all the physical conveniences that they all of and the people had forgotten over 800 or 800 years how to recreate a name which is a smartphone in his internal vocabulary or a veil, which is a flying ship, cigar shaped flying ship. Um, and it made sense because in his account, he's describing Plato's Atlantis capital, you know, on the island of Poside, which is an important word because it's my contention that Plato was referring to the final iteration of Atlantis, where in other accounts I've read from Edgar Casey and, and others and all of Frederick Oliver, they describe multiple destructions of a large mid-Atlantic 
basically consuming the entire Atlantic Ocean continent that over successive destructions, natural and human caused, was whittled down to this smaller island that Plato, in his account from Solon, from the Egyptians, would have been referring to. So I think that's important, too, because you, if you take Edgar Casey's account, you're, a, you're talking about a quarter of a million year, approximately, time span for a essentially continuous culture that coexisted with other high cultures and primitive cultures, just like today. We have, you know, Dubai and we have people in the Amazon. It's not mutually exclusive. And so I think the, the psychic sources for me were an incredibly useful tool to, to bring more clarity, you know, to, to the past. That's why I called it, you know, Visions of Atlantis is a kind of double entendre because it's, it's literally psychic visions and some clairaudient uh, automatic writing sessions. But it's also like uh, the eye exam. You know, if Plato's is the, the doctor or the optometrist, they say, you know, is this clear? Well, you know, we got a ringed city and we have some descriptions of basically Greek triremes. And, you know, but then you go into Frederick Oliver's vision. And I mean, he's describing sitting through a criminal reform program using magnetic brain reentrainment and precognition to solve crime. And it's like, he's writing this in 1881 and he's 17 years old. And the level of vocabulary and the internal coherence of his argument, uh, I would put up against anybody. You know, his theory of sun, his theory of chemistry is, is in, incredible. And it's like, okay, either it was real and he was channeling you know, his occult preceptor who visited him in a clairaudient session over the course of three years, or he's a child prodigy who should be studied as one of the greatest living, you know, pioneers like Tesla, essentially, or it was a secret contributor. But the latest a secret contributor could have added to that book would have been 1904 when the book was published. So it, Leads me and none to of that stuff existed even in the imagination at that no, time. No, no, exactly. And so it, these little things, you know, along with with the Casey readings, I try to show the perspective of, OK, let's say somebody has never heard of him. I'm not just going to come in and say, look, uh, a 60 year old man sitting on a couch in Virginia Beach said Atlantis was real and expect people to believe me. I show how. Stanford, Harvard, Princeton, hundreds of people from numerous associations tried to debunk Edgar Casey unsuccessfully. And of his 14,000 readings on missing objects, missing people, past life readings, medical issues that he could diagnose remotely, you know, something like 90% of them were accurate to a degree that's impossible. And so that's a good starting point to take this seriously. Um, and then when I was corroborating uh, his 500 Atlantis readings and trying to show archaeological, geological, cultural evidence that directly corroborated them, I was astounded uh, to find that, you know, for example, he said in 1932, in 10,500 BC, approximately, the people who knew the catastrophe was coming were told by, he just describes it as an interdimensional or extraterrestrial presence at a portal to prepare 
the evacuation and go to different places in the world, one of which was Giza, and restart the civilization in preparation for the coming disaster. And in the end of this reading, he just casually says, oh, and by the way, the Nile River, it used to flow into the Atlantic Ocean on the Congo end of the country at this time. Now, in 1986, space shuttle imaging, uh, shuttle imaging radar penetrated underneath the Sahara Desert and indeed found that there was a river system as large as the Amazon that emptied into the Atlantic near the Congo end of the base, you know, I mean, that's quite strange. And if you want to show actually um, uh, a brief picture of the, the eye of the Sahara, as they call it, or the Rishat structure that everybody uh, seems to be excited about lately for good reason. Uh, so this is an image of uh, the Rishat structure or the eye of the Sahara, which again was discovered, I believe, by astronauts in the 60s, but recently came back into uh, the discussion. And below it is a picture that a friend of mine, uh, Rocio Espin Pinar, was kind enough to lend to me. It was an artistic rendering she made. She's a professional architectural illustrator. And she made this based on the proportions described in Plato's two dialogues, because he gives specific dimensions of the city. Uh, which again, if it was a myth, why would you describe the length of the canals and the base of the foundation? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Right. And right. as you can see, I mean, the two are nearly identical uh, down to the inlet that comes in from the final ring there, the way that uh, they're oriented here in the picture. And, you know, I've seen people go all in and say, OK, we found it. And I understand why. Because certainly some, either the original or a replication of that city, something to that degree is, is present in Mauritania, south of Morocco. And then you do a little more research and you find out that in the 30s, Edgar Cayce said this exact region of the world used to be a fertile grassland with rivers and lakes. And then you do some more research and you find out that Smithsonian Magazine confirms that. And they say... This used to be a fertile grassland with rivers and lakes. And the Nile River flowed through this. So I'm not saying that this is, we found Atlantis, but certainly it could have been a colony. Plato mentions they had colonies all over North Africa, up to Egypt, including parts of Italy, Greece, Spain. Um, but I've always thought like, there's too many of these things as you see in the book uh, that, that it would statistically be impossible for these to be just simply coincidences. I mean, even NASA says we do not have an official explanation for the high degree of circularity in this. They thought it was an asteroid. They thought it was a lava flow. They, they've never found, you know, geolites inside the structure. It's a unknown thing that happens to look exactly like the circular capital of Atlantis described by Plato. So, you know, that's just one example of, how fascinating it was to me to corroborate, you know, mainstream evidence, geological, archaeological, with readings from a the most documented psychic um, ever in modern history. So well, that, that's incredible that you did that because I've read books where it's either or. Like people are like they're only looking at the geological evidence, the coming from that real academic scientific paradigm. Then there's those that get 
into the psychic realms and, you know, uh, start talking about the remote viewing programs that even the government put all this money into that ended up with accurate results again and again, it's been proven, you know, in many different places. Um, and then they get into that and then some of them get a little bit out of the, you know, stratosphere of reason in my opinion, but it's still good because we're, we're speculating on something that we've got shards of evidence for, and some of them are very compelling. And you start to wonder, I mean, how much has been hidden, how much has been lost, um, and, and how much of the resistance within the scientific community comes from just the bias that's inherent to the theories that they sort of favor that people built their careers on and that every, and so to this theory of a lost advanced civilization, whatever name we want to give it, because it's been given numerous names, we can get into that. Um, This subject alone makes us rethink our entire history, right? Um, And I think that's what's good about it is everybody's going to have their opinions on it and God love you for those opinions. But when you're trying to find the truth here, um, it's, it starts to become quite shocking how much actual evidence there is. And evidence itself is just evidence. Doesn't mean it's, it is, but when you keep, as you're bringing in just a few anecdotes here, and I know your book goes through all of them mm. and I've got other books here. I mean, even Charles Berlitz, his, his book on this, yeah, um, I read, that. read that book. Uh, Underworld by Graham Hancock. That's the one I read of his, uh, and then Michael Tessarian's book on Atlantis. And Very if you go to the website, he's got just loads of excerpts that you can look and you can just read the myths and legends. There's even the Irish uh, Western legends that a lot of guys that originally were looking at Atlantis never talked about, uh, talking about the Murias and uh, some of these advanced cultures uh, that were from before. Oh, I may have lost Michael. Let's refresh his signal. One sec, guys. There he goes. He's back. You can hear me okay, Michael? Yeah, no problem. Okay, cool. Um, and so then you've got tales. Everybody's got their name for this lost paradise this lost chapter mm-hmm. of human history even right. tolkien's lord of the rings or c.s lewis yeah. these writers encoded mm-hmm. in fiction i think it was even tolkien's son that later said that his father was very much into researching atlantis and that he was encoding a lot of that in the story of lord of the rings That's and interesting. so there's, there's a lot of things that you can bring into this field of research as well as actual scientific data that makes you go Wow. Like, how could you explain Pumapuku and Machu Picchu and the Giza pyramids and Stonehenge and all these things? Um, they, just you know. home, they just went to Home Depot, David. They built a ramp. You know, it's not <laughs> They built a ramp. I've heard some funny theories. I'm like, okay, just recreate it today with the same tools well, that they had. Go ahead. I anytime. Always, yeah. No, I always, I always tell people, I mean, particularly in the case of uh, Giza, I mean, you're talking 2.3 million blocks, each weighing approximately the same weight more than a, let's say, Jeep Grand Cherokee. So I always entertain people, you know, go outside, take all the rims off your Jeep Grand Cherokee, get all your friends, you can build a ramp, and drag that 550 miles through what would have been a verdant meadowland with animals and, you know, and rainfall. You're going to have to probably cross some streams. Uh, and then do that 2.3 million more times and then stack those and align them and build internal structures within it in an age that we're told does not have electricity. I mean, yeah, that's it's a, a joke. It's a joke. They, I think you hit on it earlier. It's they're mad because the entire edifice that professional history is built on is a joke. And I'm a professional historian. I'm not saying that there aren't good historians, but the origin story is 
it's juvenile. It's it's a fairy tale that we it's completely incomplete. It's probably starting in Sumeria is like saying that the history of the 20th century began today. It's it's absurd. You're skipping World War One, World War Two. I mean, it, you you can't understand anything. So and it's interesting. Oh, sorry, Michael, sorry to you jump in. Are you familiar with Michael Cremo's work? Uh, say again. Oh, sorry. Uh, are you familiar with Michael Cremo's work? You don't know archaeology. No, he, he's a gentleman. If you if you get into him, um, he his book Forbidden Archaeology. I think it was mm. came out in the seventies, um, and he's updated it since. I've interviewed him many times, and uh. he brings to the table the aspect that human civilization is far older than even the best, uh, even alternative experts that think it's it's you know the, uh, whatever three hundred thousand years old. He thinks it's far older than that, and that history's gone on more of a cycle than just a start date and end date, you know, it's a different. I think, I think that's even, it's at this point to argue against that. I mean, I always tell people, here's another interesting thing. Uh, going back to, you said, uh, two things I want to touch on was, uh, you mentioned, uh, Tolkien and I talk about that actually in, in the final chapter of the book, how he based the Island of Numenor in his fiction off of Atlantis. And he says that in a letter to a fan from the sixties, uh, somebody like Christopher Bremerton or something, uh, he wrote a letter and he said, my whole life I've had this dream of dying in a flood in Atlantis and it, it haunts me. It keeps coming back, coming back. And I put that in my, my work to try to like exercise this, this demon. So you're right. And, and, you know, I even say that in the book, the Star Wars franchise is, is it's either the people that created that, you know, a lot of people say that it was just Joseph Campbell that influenced Lucas, which there's no doubt he did. I mean, they were friends. He consulted. But if you read the Frederick Oliver story and the Edgar Casey story from the same timeline, from 12,000 years ago, roughly, uh, it is Star Wars. I mean, the techno- they have holographic communication technology. That's Frederick Oliver saying that in 1881. He's talking about, I'm on my ship, I'm on my veil, and I'm basically seeing... You know, Princess Leia on the ship, except it's Princess Anzime. You know, and, and, you, and I, so I keep coming back to that point where if he's saying that in eight, the end of the 1800s, yes. there's nothing even remotely close to that at, no, that existed. Like today, if I had that dream today, someone yeah. could go, "Oh, you were just watching, you know, some of the latest videos and the technology we got. We got iPhones or whatever." But in eight, eight late 1800s, I mean, that's yeah. really in, incredible. No, I mean, he he had heard of the Dynamo, you know, and he- he had heard of the internal combustion injury. And he said it's a combined telephone and telephote. But he's describing a holographic smartphone. You know, that's what he's described, but he doesn't have the language to use it. So it's, it's interesting. And, um, but yeah, so, I mean, I think really that Star Wars, I don't even think that the people that wrote Star Wars sifted through 500 Edgar Casey readings, which... We're in a private archive in Virginia Beach. I really doubt that. What I think it is, though, is a collective unconscious reprise in fiction. And I think that's why Lord of the Rings and Star Wars are the most successful, timeless franchises in human history, in, <laughs> to my knowledge, uh, because they're reflections of something, a, a drama that really did take place, you know. And in Casey's uh many descriptions, 500, if you piece them together from all these disjointed readings, you have 
the sons of the law of one, who are essentially the Jedi, versus the sons of Belial, who are the Sith or the Empire. They have crystal technology. They have basically a ground-based Death Star. I mean, they have the Force. They have... It's... They're vying for power over human minds. It's, it's not that far of a stretch. And so it, it was almost like it has to be something bigger than that, you know, that, that this idea, like you said, comes out in all these different, you know, avenues that are totally unrelated. And then when you see the actual uh, corroborating evidence from history, culture, language, for example, in those 500 Atlantis readings, he doesn't just say, you know, your name was David Whitehead and you lived in Atlantis. He says your name was Onxor or Axtel or Asmine or Inkshell, you know, and they're very specifically written out. He even said to his stenographer in the trance, write it like this. And so I went through and he also said, you know, because Ignatius Donnelly always said, it's bizarre to me that the Basque language from Andorra in the Pyrenees Mountains on the border of Spain and France is nearly identical phonetically to the Nahua language, which is an indigenous language of Yucatan, Mexico hmm. and surrounding areas. It makes no sense. And Edgar Casey said that they didn't just go to the Pyrenees or I'm sorry, to Giza. They went to the Pyrenees, which is where Andorra is. And then Yucatan. And it's like, he said this in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And when you compare modern names from Andorra in Basque with the names he gives in the readings and then names from the Nahuatl language, bing, 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 bing. Again, so it's, it's, it's not bizarre if you realize that, well, these are surviving refugee cultures, reboots, if you will, and, and former colonies of a mid-Atlantic once continent that he claims was reduced to five islands in 50,722 BC. And I could get into that if you'd like to uh, talk about that for a second. Um, somebody asked him one time, what was the first iteration of Atlantis? And he said it was a giant continent that stretched from the Gulf of Mexico to the entrance, the Straits of Gibraltar. And somebody said, well, what, what happened to it? Because you talked about it as an island in another reading. And he said, well, in 50,722 BC, you, the person asking the question, took part in a great Congress to deal with the animal menace, AKA the megafauna that were overrunning the world. And he said, you guys decided to use the death ray to shoot a directed energy weapon into the stratosphere from different points on the earth, different power stations, and then bounce it back, as I understand it, into volcanic openings in the earth's core to try to destroy the population of the, uh, or the food supply of the animals. This is, this is what he says. And so I'm looking through the record and in mainstream uh, zoology or whatever the field you wanna call it, they say, in the Journal of Quaternary Studies or whatever, we have no way to know. We think it's due to animal uh, man-made hunting and you know, hunt, we hunted them to extinction with, with Stone Age weapons. But there was a mega, there was a giant megafaunal extinction spike around 50,000 BC. So, I mean, it's like, 
he didn't say 40. He didn't say 20. He said 50,722. You were trying to make the megafauna go extinct. And then we actually find that. And he said that that precipitated a pole shift that had already been in progress. And the climate change from the Earth's tectonic plates, the crust shifted and fractured this continent into five islands that themselves remained, you know, large land masses until the second destruction, which he puts at 28,000 roughly BC. And the guy said, well, what happened then? He said, so well, sorry, Michael, I just got to replug my computer. It's going to die on me. So keep, keep this going. No I can still hear you. Okay. I'll be right back. No problem. Um, in the second destruction, hello. Hi, hi everybody. I'm your host. Uh, in the second destruction, he says around 28,000 BC, again, not in the regular time scale that mainstream historians are used to dealing with, uh, the Tuoi stone, which was a giant tower with a retracting dome with an enormous <clears throat> crystal in the center of it that was essentially powering the civilization with other substations, uh, that a technician overtuned the stone and actually precipitated a second destruction which destroyed the five islands and reduced them to uh, three. And he named them. He said the three remaining islands, which would have been those described by Plato, would have been Poseidia, Arion, and Og. And I know from Michael Tsarian, he always says, you know, Ireland, that word etymologically, he argued, came from Arion. You know, so perhaps that is a fragment of the island of Arion. But... And then I believe Ojigia was on old medieval maps that were said to be mythical. But I mean, Edgar Casey says Og, O-G, Aryan, spelled just like you'd think, A-R-Y-A-N, and Poseidia. And Frederick Oliver calls it Poseid. And if you want to show uh, one more image, what, I entertain anybody to, to tell me how this is possible um, because it's the image of... Frederick Oliver's sketch of the island of Poside, which he made in 1881, and a 2020, thereabouts, bathy satellite scan of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, where the Azores are right now. Okay, so the above image was sketched around 1881 by Frederick Oliver, and he's saying, I had a past life on this island called Poside, part of the Atlantic. Oh, we may have lost you there, Michael. Can you hear me? I'll give him a sec, guys. Uh, he'll come back. Yeah, this is very, very interesting stuff. Um, I'm just going to see if I can. So this is the drawing he's talking about. And then this is the actual map. I wonder if I can. Why can't I zoom on the map? Either way, I'll see if I can get these pictures posted uh afterwards guys on my telegram so you guys can have a look at it for yourself but um yeah this is uh, I'll, I'll bring it up when he comes back but if you he's when he's talking about some of the other names that it's gone by and this is where i go okay like the term atlantis everybody just associates with plato's account 
but that's the only time they maybe use that term. Um, and there's other names for it, you know, Amente, uh, Asgard, Avalon, Arctos, Agartha, Shangri-La, Hyperborea, Thule, uh, Rutas. And then in Irish mythology, this is, uh, from Michael's book there, it's Phineas, Murius, Gorius, and Phalias. Yeah. So the, these are the different ways that they called it. Oh, he's, there we go. I see him there. He's in the chat. Let me just see here. Ask him what browser he's using. Sometimes that can have an effect. And we'll get him right back. Let me in. Okay. How come it's not popping up? Hold on a second here. Sorry, guys, bear with us here. I'm just trying to figure out why he's not showing for me on my end to let him back in. Refresh his browser. To do like a technical support uh, show for all the podcasters out there. <laughs> try refreshing the browser and coming back in. Let's try that. I heard it. There he is. There he is. That's it. Hi, there David. we go. I'm sorry. So, I'm, I'm, I'm downloading Chrome right now as we speak. I think I'm using uh, Edge, so I apologize. Okay. And I haven't, I haven't tried with Edge before. It should be good, but I, I, they say that Firefox and Chrome are usually best for video, so sometimes it's better. Okay. Um, and your signal's solid, but then sometimes it'll dip a little bit. So okay. that's okay. You, we can hear you. you can hear me okay? I hope, I hope you're angry. I'm sorry about that. Oh, no, 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 not at all. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. Dude, I've seen all the possible uh, technical difficulties in podcasting. It happens to I'm this sure. day. It's beyond our control sometimes. But you were talking about um, some of the different names, the the ARIA, the, the different names that it's gone by. I just read off a few names mm -hmm. that sure, Michael Bethany was referencing in his book right. of, uh, you know, Hyperborea, Shangri-La, Agartha, mm -hmm. Phineas, Murius. Uh, many of these other names. And this is where for me on a lot of these subjects, if you're, you're going to look for patterns, right? Especially when we're looking at ancient myths and legends, because we can't just take it all on face value, but it's when you compare notes with civilizations that should have never talked to each other, that should have never been in contact with each other that are writing similar accounts of events or referencing these ancient places. Obviously they've got a different uh, cultural narrative behind it, different mm -hmm. language, different names. <laughs> But right. so that doesn't mean that all the names given are these ancient places that all existed simultaneously. It's right. just different names and interpretations of what I think is the same thing. And I think that's what we're trying to look at here is what sure. are they talking about as that? What is that same thing? You know, and, and you know, it's it's interesting because <clears throat> I found something else that I had never seen anybody talk about, which was just by accident, actually, the Google uh, image accident. But. I was looking through, I think it was the Mahabharata, which again, it's difficult to date, but I put a rough date of, you know, I think it was 2000 BC, parts of it were written. It, it, it's not important. What's important is they mentioned in that uh, a 10 year war with an island called, uh, I think it was Atalia. And they place it at around the, where the Canary Islands are today. 
if you interpret oh, really? their description of the location. So just out of curiosity, I go to Google Earth and I look at the Canary Islands and there's still a city there called La Atalaya. No way. It, I didn't know that. Look, yeah, and it's spelled A-T-A-L-A-Y-A. You know, it's got an extra A. But I mean, it's like, wh- how is that possible? That, I mean, this is another one of these things where if we pay attention, and there's also a La Atalaya in, uh, I believe, Jalisco, Mexico as well. <laughs> there's a town called La Atalaya. And it's like, how do these things get all over the place? But that image um, that you brought up before the, the technical difficulty, I mean, I'm asking this as a serious question, not to to be aggressive, but when Frederick Oliver drew this picture, again, even if you say, oh, it was a secret contributor. OK, let's put it out to 1904. I looked through all the maps of the Mid-Atlantic, which the best one, really, there was only one. Uh, at the time that was widely circulated was the Challenger Expedition, which was a sailing ship from 1877 that gives absolutely no detail. There you go. You're back in. For some reason, when I pull the screen share up, it pushes you out sometimes. I don't know what's happening. Oh, no problem. We got it. We saw it. Sure, sure. I'll ask you this then without the screen share. So he draws a picture that you can share uh, for discussion. But so I looked and I'm like, okay, even I, I mean, I remember almost falling out of my chair when I saw this and calling a friend like, am I going crazy or like, what is this? Because I'm always skeptical of of any channeled source because anybody goes, oh, I channeled this, I channeled that. It's like, but Okay, so he draws a picture, a triangular, it looks like almost like a fin-shaped island. And he says, this is what the island of Poside looked like. And I was looking at a modern satellite scan of the Azores, you know, mid-Atlantic Ridge, where Dolphin Ridge, where Ignatius Donnelly said Atlantis, the island was. It's identical to the sketch of what this 17-year-old kid in 1881 drew in a notebook during the Wild West, during the times of Django Unchained. You know, I mean, I mean, yeah. right after that, but 1881, obviously not slave times, but it's like he's still in the age of horse and carriage and a couple. How, how did he know that when the Challenger expedition just basically took you know, soundings and depth findings and said, hey, look, we found something that doesn't, it looks like a seamount, but they didn't have a the, the contours of the bottom of the ocean like we have today, which if you superimpose his drawing over them are almost a hundred percent match. And then you look at the where that is and it's 800 miles directly west of Portugal, which is where Plato said the damn island was in the Incredible. dialogue. So it's like, how do we explain this? And again, I'm not saying that that's it. I think, though, that that probably was, like Donnelly was correct, that was where the final empire was based after these numerous uh, three destructions, which reduced it to that, whatever Arion looked like. We never got a description of that and the other island, Og. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's quite 
strange. And as you said, like what Michael Starian said with the, the different names, it, it, I mean, how many names, you know, if, if, if somebody in the future said, Hey, everybody keeps talking about this place called Greece, 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 but we only found records of a place called Hellas. So it's different. It's like, well, that's what the Greeks call it. That's right. what we call it. What do they call it in Germany? What do they call it in Spain? And so there was a researcher I cited at the beginning, I think, uh, R. Cedric Leonard. And he said that. He said, people love to say that there's no sources of Pla uh, Atlantis before Plato. If they ignore all the Sanskrit writings, if they ignore any deviation of how that's spelled, and if they ignore, you know, essentially hundreds of oral traditions that talk about, like you said, this lost mid-Atlantic Eden that we all came from. So, um, yeah, I just think that, you know, the, the strength of the book, if I have to say, is just not only showing that these clairvoyant, handful of clairvoyant readings were accurate, but that they, they give a window of a world that's basically what we fictionalize in Star Wars, except it was 12,500 years ago and, and beyond. And that that's actually, the def if they are correct, the default state of humanity is living in a high technology Star Wars-like state and that we right now are actually at the bottom crawling back to the top. And I think that's cool. I don't think that's depressing. I think that's incredible if we take it seriously. It is. It's fa It's so fascinating. And it's fascinating, like you said, the evidence of this being something worth looking into is the fascination that virtually all of humanity for thousands of years, from writing it to talking about it to this very moment, has had with it. And that's obviously not evidence, but it's something that you go, all right, why are we so attracted to this idea? What is it about the idea of a lost golden age or a lost civilization that was high technology? It wasn't primitive. Uh, right. It was far more advanced than we were told. Um, right. Why is that uh, so ubiquitous everywhere? And you, you get into the idea um, of like genetic memory, that we mm -hmm. might be having memory. You know, the um, Aboriginals, the First Nations peoples, they have discussions about the memories of the ancestral knowledge. Sure. The, the idea of the Akashic records and all these things. And you realize what if in our very DNA is contained right. a memory of this. And this is why it keeps showing up in dreams and right. um, it brings in so many questions, but I just always, I'm with you on that on a lot of things. What is it in us that is so attracted to it? If it's just total myth and hogwash and whatever. Right. And we're, if we realize that when you're watching what Hollywood does is all Hollywood does is find these ancient myths and legends and stories and then redraft them into what we call Marvel comics or whatever exactly. Lord of the Rings. It's all, it's all, and, but, but when you take away this like Stargate SG one, or when you take away <laughs> the narrative they give you about the story and you just go, all right, shift a little bit. And here's actual accounts from ancient peoples all over the world saying the same yes. thing. Yes. You can tell the story the same way. It's just, it, it there must basically I'm saying there must be something to it. Especially with maybe a bit about too, but the archaeolo the actual archaeological evidence that now is coming out more and right. more of these things. Well, and again, you know, it, and it, it's so interesting because uh, I actually talk about the Avengers and Infinity Wars in the final chapter, and I say like, "What is this? Like, it's not clear yeah. to me why these are like these are not original ideas. These are not at all. 
you know, like when you see even Boba Fett, he's wearing the Knights Templar helmet. He just has a rocket pack. You know, <laughs> exactly. I always tell people like, I'm it's, glad you noticed that. Yeah, there's. I, I met him actually, the actor, when I was. Oh, really? Kid. Yeah, I, I really did. But you know, it's like there's a reason that we rehash these things because not only, like you said, there's a genetic memory, but it's like this probably was the foundational story that we know was real. We used to fly around underwater in ships like the Jetsons. We used to be able to project. We used to, there were mutants that were hybridized versions. We used to communicate with other beings from other worlds. Like, and if you think about logically, if we don't blow ourselves up in the next 2000 years, that's exactly what we're going to be doing anyway. Right. So what, what is the big deal? I even say that like it's arrogance, it's, it's, it's arrogance and it's fear that's keeping us from actually taking seriously these accounts of, you know, Vimanas or the veil from Frederick Oliver, or, or even just the possibility of, of extraterrestrials, which at this point, if you deny categorically, you're just ignorant. Um, so it's like, but to me, I, I agree with you. Like you, you can't just say, well, Edgar Casey said it, so it's true because then you're an ideologue. You know, or, oh, look, we found a, a fragment, you know, that I talk about in Spain that might say Atal. So there, there it is. There, you know, it's like, yeah, Lynn Casey, Edgar's son, said famously, he said, look, if we fast forward to the year 14,600, you know, 12,000 years in the future from, you know, our destruction, hypothetically, and somebody comes along and they drill a two inch hole in the bottom of the ocean. You know, are they going to find your studio? Are they going to find Manhattan? Are they going to find the Falcon X rock? No, they're going to find, you know, freshwater diatoms or the skeleton of a person, but they're going to have no reference point. We keep everything now in the cloud in non-physical form anyway. So it's like, what really would be left, you know? And then what if they found remnants of our culture that were only primitive, like, Remnants from the Amazon, they'd say, oh, these people were Stone Age, but they didn't find the Falcon X rocket. You know what I mean? Right, so right, right. It has to be a much more nuanced discussion, you know, like Edgar Casey mentions an extraterrestrial interdimensional warning at the final destruction. But he doesn't say aliens gave them a ride. To they were in I think he cut out again. There we go. Come back on there. There we go. Um, Just cut you off right there. You're you're back. No problem. I've got about uh, ten more minutes before before they shut that's me down here at the at the. No studio. problem. Oh, that's good. It's perfect. Um, and um, yeah, actually, can yeah, I, five minutes. Okay, I've got <laughs> the guy. Five at the minutes. Studio. Five no, minutes. Well, Michael, the the thing about this subject, I'm sure you'll agree, is it's so deep, and all we can really do in this show is just introduce the concept yeah. to people who probably maybe have already looked at it. Some people haven't some, you know, whatever people think about it, but sure. maybe just describe how your book ties it all together. Because like we've said, there's different researchers that sort of stick to their version of That's how right. they look at evidence. You're just trying to collect it all, put it on That's the plate right. and go, here you go. Could you maybe just define that? No. And thank you. And that's a perfect way to, to tie this in is, you know, I didn't go to Egypt I didn't go, I am a scuba diver, but I didn't go diving on a wreck. I would love to in the future with the team eventually, but what I really I'm was trying up. to do. I'm there. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Let's go. Uh, but 
what I was really trying to do was show like, you know, a book. And this is, this is why it was so difficult to write. And I'm very you know proud to have finished it on time because I could have kept going, but I wanted to write a book that like my friend's mom, who's never studied this, but has always been open-minded could read. And it's, it's not dumbed down or, you know, it's not spoon feeding you. It's still a very, you know, in at times technical book, but it's a book that like, Anybody who's ever heard of this could read and to my understanding, like get the biggest, you know, picture of what the hell is this thing from Greek perspective, Indian perspective, you know, Yucatan perspective from Native American myths talking about the Hopi talking about Lemuria, this, this. But at the same time, seeing how it's not treated the same as everything else we treat as ancient history and, and that really it's been unfortunately the people from my profession who have turned the story and, and really only in the last 30 years into this fairy tale that's to be debunked and discredited. Um, because up until very recently, thousands of people from as many professions, including Plato and Aristotle, so long, if it were a historical reality, including some of the most famous philosophers, Montaigne talked about it. Uh, Gian Rinaldo Carli, a famous Enlightenment philosopher up there with Voltaire, talked about it. Ignatius Donnelly, who was a congressman, you know, was talking about it. And the people that discovered the Mid-Atlantic Ridge said specifically, when the new America was forming, it was likely that the old Atlantis was sinking. And this is based on multiple lines of evidence that are now converging. Could you imagine National Geographic I'll end on that, writing a piece like that today. No, it's impossible. It's And even just to be fair to the fact that it's a subject that has existed as curious for the human mind and there's elements to it, like even just to open it up, isn't that what science is supposed to be is an inquiry right. into reality? Like, why are we so yeah. closed-minded? I think they might be hiding something. And what do you think they got stored under the Vatican? That's probably another show. Oh, but <laughs> well, you know, that's funny. That's where, that's where Athanasius Kircher found the only map from Egypt of Atlantis. He said, I found this in the Vatican library. Really? And you know, they stole a lot of shit, excuse my language, from the Library of Alexandria, which they finished off in the final destruction. Uh, the first was Julius Caesar when he was trying to help Cleopatra. But, you know, they I don't think they just destroyed everything. I think a lot of that stuff is definitely out there. And yeah. you know, an advantage on the board the, the the knowledge is power or who knows yes. and it's funny how we're moving towards that technological future and possible self-destruction again it's as if there's a cycle and maybe by yes. looking back at history and putting all this in perspective we can correct course and not repeat those same mistakes right that's right and and that's how i end the book is basically look you know it's it's not an original idea for me many people have said this but you know we are in a very clear to me at least cycle of repeating the mistakes that were, you know, purportedly done in Atlantis. And what do we do about that? I think educate ourselves and take this subject uh, seriously. I agree. I agree. Well, Michael, man, I could talk to you for hours. We'll have to do this again. Please keep Absolutely. us updated. I, okay. I love this subject. It's so fun and uh, so fascinating and I think very relevant. I know you got to go. So uh, thank you sure. so much. And uh, yeah, serious. If you ever go do that scuba diving thing, I'm no scuba diver, but I'll take the courses and I'll do it. I got to get research. Diving, so I'm yeah. very serious about that. I'm creating a team. I'm going to call them the Argonauts. If anybody out there, I need an archaeologist, a philosopher. 
you know, a couple of years out. Start well, now. You definitely need a rogue podcaster to tell. I need a Canadian story. rogue so podcaster. Sir. <laughs> that uh, they, the 300 Spartans gave the story to after everybody, yeah, definitely. You know, but anyways, Michael, it's been a pleasure, man. I'll link to the book. And if it's okay with you, I'll post those images that you sent me on my telegram. So people oh, can chat, chat it up please, and, please. um, and we'll, we'll have to do this again real soon, brother. All right, man. We'll take care David and I'll talk to you soon. You too. You too. Very well. Right. Good job. Wow. Guys, I'll, uh, I'll just stick around for a few more minutes to get some of your comments and, uh, give some of my feedback here, this subject, it's so incredible to get into. And once you get into it, it's, it reveals so much. It reveals a lot about how much of what we've been told with our history is absolutely incorrect, if not a flat out lie. Um, and it opens up the discussion to, we don't maybe always know what it is that we're seeing with all this evidence, but we know we're seeing something. There's enough smoke for there to be a fire. And we know that uh, what we've been told by whether it's your religious institutions or your scientific institutions needs to be reframed when you add new evidence into the fore or at least new theory and speculation to help us get a better vision of our history. If something went down, something is there to it. And as I was doing research for this, it was actually Josh, Josh Reed, I host the Earth Chronicles with, he fired over this video on Tartaria. So I'm kind of digging into this right now, but this gentleman on TikTok just did like a good three minute summary of it. He shows some stuff. I haven't vetted any of this. This is fresh. I just wanted to add it in because uh, I've people been emailing me and thanks for that. I'm still trying to look into it more. But again, it just uh, looks at different evidence that there is a lot more to our history than we've been told and that there is many lost ancient civilizations that may not have been as primitive as we, as we once thought. So let's check out this video and then I'll come back. Something really cool and one of a kind in the mail. And lots of people have been asking me about Tartaria and whether or not it's real. So it's the perfect time to start getting into the conversation about the lost civilizations that were wiped from history. So the first question is whether or not Tartaria was real. And this is the genealogy for their royal family. So yeah, it was real. Oh snap, son! This piece is from the early 1700s, and you can see it's the genealogy of the ancient emperors of Tartaria, the descendants of Genghis Khan. And you can see it starts with Genghis Khan, and it goes out into the various branches of the royal families. And it has some historical information and a very nice map of Tartaria Magna, the Greater Tartaria, which spanned across Asia from Europe to China. And it even has some very interesting history that kind of rewrites the modern history books. That the Chinese invasions that are in the modern history books in the 1600s were not just internal to various Chinese families, that in 1645 the Tartarians actually took over the Chinese Empire, which is a completely different story than what we have today. And that the accepted history in the 1600s among the Jesuits was that the Tartarians and the Chinese had been fighting for over 2,000 years. There's actually a very good set of very scholarly works about how history has been rewritten by the church and that the church basically wrote empires out of history, changed names, changed timelines to make everything conform to church primacy and give them legitimacy. These volumes are History, Fiction, or Science by Anatoly Fomenko. Now, I don't agree with everything Fomenko has in these books, not by a long shot, but the questions he asks are correct. And it seems that one of the greatest casualties of this full-scale hoaxing of history 
was the Tartarian Empire. This historical and archaeological forgery gets really interesting when you look at the actual history of the Americas and just how many out-of-place artifacts do exist here. Everybody's heard about the Egyptians in the Grand Canyon, but have you heard about the Calliste colony, the Egyptian colony in New Mexico, or the Celtic Ogham petroglyphs that exist in West Virginia right now today that I myself have personally been to, or even my wildly popular video about the temple in Tennessee that they found and then covered back up with an artificial lake. In a recent video, I spoke about the 1820s book by a U.S. senator that has an introductory passage by a historian that got the verbal histories of the tribes that told a vastly different story about the history of the Americas that never made it to the modern day. And in all likelihood, this is the book that Joseph Smith copied to write the Book of Mormon. So the fix is in and the cover-up is on. And if you're wondering, places like the Smithsonian, take a look at their logo. The Sun logo of the Smithsonian is the logo of the Jesuits. And it's a sad state of fucking affairs when the tarot guy in the turkey hat gives you more truth than supposed experts like Archeo Wolf or Mini Minuteman that just pick and choose from Wikipedia and pander to the lowest common denominator. So for this Thanksgiving, I'm thankful for all of you that are out there and interested in the real truth. This book that I'm speaking about will be available on my website within the next week, and I plan to make it available in some form in a PDF so everybody can read it and get the actual information, but if you want the printed version, go ahead and buy a copy. Happy Thanksgiving, and I wish you and your families the best as we uncover the truth together. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Um, still digging into it, but it doesn't surprise me. I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman I was listening to years ago that talked about Atlantis in the Americas. There's a book on, uh, there's also another book. It's Atlantis in Latin America or La Atlantis in the Americas. I can't remember. And again, just people digging up on inexplicable documents, accounts, archeological finds that just defy everything that we've been told. So that doesn't mean every single thing we've been told is a complete lie. It just means that the information has been cherry picked to a large degree. And, uh, you know, then you can get into the conspiracy angle where, you know, he's looking at the symbolism, which is really good of the Smithsonian, the Jesuits, that whole history, you know, what uh, motive would they have to cover up, uh, this history? Well, um, obviously to maintain that, that, uh, dominance with their particular narrative. Whereas if we look at all the narratives together, all the narratives that have been told from the Native Americans to the Aztecs, to the Inca, the Maya, the Egyptians, uh, the Irish, the Celts, those myths and legends that have been lost, and you put it all together, even uh, we got into this a little bit with the Bach saga uh, from Finland and Denmark and all that, where they were talking about how uh, there's you know a total different history of Western peoples that's been erased. Um, and, you know, you look back and you go, well, a, a real simple way to explain this, to open up people's minds is to say, well, we're learning today in our modern era, just how fake our news media is the media that is responsible for reporting the facts of reality and the date and the events of what's going on to us. Look at what we've just exposed just in the last three years, let alone how we could go back for decades showing 
that our media is owned and it's biased and it's it's controlled information. It's selected information. You're not getting all the tales. And again, that doesn't mean every single thing is just a flat out lie. It just means it's it's cherry picked, it's massaged, it's pushed towards a certain conclusion so that when you're watching it, you're given an impression about what this data is that you're being given. And then people don't think outside of that. They don't research for themselves and they just accept it. So, you know, to challenge the paradigm, you got to put it all on the table and you got to go, well, what about the histories then? And why can't, why is this so, um, why is this subject of lost civilizations and a time of history, a sort of a missing chapter of our history, why is that so taboo in the scientific world? And why is that also so taboo in the religious world? Like, why do we, why do we have to only contend with those two paradigms? Why can't we open up and say, let's take those paradigms and add in some of these others. And again, we've got a smorgasbord of writers and experts and researchers and uh, people that left the status quo of the scientific establishment or people that came from the inside of the Vatican uh, or some of that that came out and exposed some of this. Uh, where does that stand when you put it all on the table? And all it does for me is say, hey, that means there's mysteries to be explored. There's a whole chapter of history that's only been told to us in fiction and in myth and with Hollywood. Whereas the factual scientific explanation is having holes blown through it in so many different ways. And yet they don't change just like they did with this whole pandemic. You know, new evidence came out and they didn't even consider it. And they just sensed that everybody that didn't agree with this one organization, this one perspective, you know, what do you think is different about our history? Uh, so if we're going to learn about history, we have to go to the maverick thinkers, uh, the insiders, the whistleblowers, the people that experienced it. We need to also go and collect the stories from the uh, indigenous, aboriginal, native, first nations peoples. Uh, I've spoken to many of those groups as well, and their tales are just remarkable when you think about it. And you have to, when you're researching this, you don't have to dive all in on one aspect of a theory. You don't have to accept it all. You don't, that's not what research is. That's not what we do on this show. We're not trying to indoctrinate anybody. We'll let the mainstream news do that. We're trying to open the mind to say, let's put this into the picture and see where it fits. Let's look at it. Let's research it. There's a mystery here. And you know, what if there's something to it? What does that do to everything that we thought we knew? I think it opens up for more possibilities. It, it opens up for uh, a greater understanding of how we got to where we are now. And if you think history and studying history is just a, it's a hobby subject. I think what we're living through right now is proving that it's way more relevant than we first thought because we got to here to this place that we're at right now with all the challenges that we're up against, you know, the pros and cons, the whole package. We got to this place now from somewhere and there's a process of unfolding history that's taking place right now. We're living history right now. Future historians are going to look back at the shards of evidence that are left over from our time, and they're going to start jumping to conclusions about what was really going on and how we don't have the ability to sit there and go, okay, why can't we apply that same logic to the way we analyze evidence information about history right now? I mean, when they're dating things coming out of ancient Egypt or any of these other places, in Peru or wherever you want to go, South Africa, even when they're dating these things, when you find out what they use to date these things with, which is usually it's like a guilty by association. Oh, we found a pot or a burial or a site or an urn that we dated at this date and it was near the location. So therefore the location is that date. 
It's stuff like that that you're like, what? That's how you dated that shit? That's the, that's the conclusion and we're resting a whole pile of theories on top of that? Obviously, in, that, in those kind of scenarios, people could be bringing things in their time to ancient sites that were already established, right? There's whole theories that even the ancient Egyptian culture didn't build the pyramids. They discovered them and then built their civilization around it and were eternally trying to mimic it. That's another theory. Um, so that means we may have lost civilizations that history doesn't have in the records, at least officially. And uh, what does this do to our worldview? What does this do to our ability to analyze where we're at and where we could be going? Because uh, it does seem like we as humans, even if you just look from, say, World War I till now, we somehow keep repeating mistakes. We keep seeing cycles happen just within these smaller windows of time. But if you just expand that window of time and you see it as a cycle that constantly keeps repeating itself, uh, maybe that can explain a lot of these mysteries. Who knows? So anyways, guys, I mean, it's endless what we could get into here. But, uh, you know, yeah, many some people are talking about cherry, cherry pick manuscripts from ancient history. You got to get into translation errors. You got to get into comparative study. There's, there's something that we don't do enough of, I think which is comparative analysis. That's why I like comparative study of mythology and religion and history to look at it all. And that way you're, you're an observer. You're trying to take in data. You don't have to conclude on anything. You got to keep this open-ended. I think that was really the spirit of what science was supposed to be, was just let's keep studying the mystery. But when it became enclosed in its own dogma, in many cases, uh, in terms of the worldview and the history view and the whole thing, it trapped itself in the same trap that it was trying to free humanity from, from the beginning. And that's just, if you look at it as a natural thing, leaving out the fact that there are probably forces on this planet that don't want humanity to know about their origins. They don't want this chapter to be told. They only want it told in fiction and myth so that we disassociate it from it in any kind of reality. And then the literal accounts they give us are the real fiction. That's how I see it. So half the time, regardless of what we know about the what's going on in Hollywood and all that kind of stuff, they're telling you, somebody's telling you. Some of these films could be from people who are trying to whistleblow this information. Some of them could be deliberate misinformation mixed with some truth. Who knows? But when you see the same narratives, like if, if we sit here, maybe I should do some shows on this, but we go through the Avengers series, for example, um, or some of these films, and then compare it to myths and legends that came thousands of years ago telling you the identical same story. They even use some of the same names for these characters, right? Uh, and you compare it, you're, they're telling you a fictional mythological story in a sort of blown up Hollywood production. But uh, what if there's more to it, right? And what if somebody's trying to hint at that? So lots of different places to go here. These are, those are the books that I showed you that I kind of learned all this from. Charles Berlitz. Ignatius Donnelly. I mean, what a classic. I think actually I looked at this, the original, yeah, the original publication date of this book was April of 1882. April of 1882 is when, that's what it says the beginning of this copy. And I found it funny. I was like, oh, I was born in April of 1982, exactly 100 years after this book. And I thought I always thought, hey, that's a pretty cool coincidence. But really, really great. He's got lots of illustrations in here. 
Um, and just wanted to mention something about uh, Mark's or um, uh, our guest's comment on when he was talking about how they were accusing Donnelly of finding Atlantis everywhere. I like that way of explaining it. I don't believe Atlantis was just this one place. I, I like the way he broke it down where it became shrunken down into this one area. It may have started from one location, but just like the Roman Empire or the British Empire, they set up outposts all over the world. And that's why we're digging up Atlantis everywhere is because it was everywhere, right? Like that's, that's what, and it was named many things depending on the cultures that, you know, you, you talk to about it, but the descriptions, when the descriptions become so similar, regardless of cultural and historical periods, that's where you got to say, okay, there's got to be something here. And then, um, in Michael's book, Atlantis, he does whole chapters on, he, I like it because it's a resource book, whole chapters on just the actual sources in the myths and legends, the actual writers, the books that you can go read to learn more about it. And then just sit with it, just look at it and keep adding evidence to it. And I hope we can do more scientific explorations, real scientific explorations into this. Uh, I'd love to be on site for some of these digs or scuba diving events or whatever to go and check it out and see it. Cause there's nothing like seeing it for yourself. Um, but yeah, ancient history, lost chapters. It's uh, it's a fascinating one. Oh, and I should have brought it. Do I have it down here? I wonder if I got it. I was showing it on my telegram for Christmas. They gave my family, got me this book on Tolkien's store on Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and all the myths that he referenced to create the story. And they have it all in alphabetical order with all the names, the certain myths they came from the cultures, etc. It's a really, really cool book. The photos in it, the illustrations are just amazing. And, um, there's just some really great work out there to help you guys research this further. If you're interested and if you like this topic, I'll do more on it on this channel. I'm sure we'll probably get into this a little bit also on Earth Chronicles, um, which we are, just to let you guys know, if you haven't heard, I do a show on Wednesdays with Josh Reed on Badlands Media on Rumble. It's called Earth Chronicles. We're about four episodes in, and we've got some fascinating discussions, even a few debates coming up that you can check out. So you can check us out over there. So I'll be there this Wednesday. We do that show at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. And what's that? Uh, 8 p.m. UK time. So we do that every Wednesday. And then uh, go and check it out. If you really want to go deep, deep, deep into this subject of ancient civilizations and also the question of psychology, the question of ancient trauma, that's a really key aspect to learning about why maybe uh, so many don't even want to look at this. It's almost traumatic to look at this. Um, we get into that over at Unslaved. That's our premium podcast that I do with Michael Tessarian. And if you go to the Unslaved Archive and you just type in Atlantis or Lost Civilizations, I have a whole uh, section on that site dedicated to it. You'll find posts, articles, uh, interviews that we've done. There's even been a few premiums that have been done on it on that site. And we've had many, many fascinating guests on the subject. So go check that out at unslaved.com. And for Unslaved subscribers, uh, I know Michael's been away for a few weeks. He's had a lot going on. Uh, but he's back. I'm recording with him tomorrow. And uh, we're going to be getting into, uh, I think we're getting into collectivism, individualism, psychology, tyranny, all that kind of stuff. So stay tuned at unslave.com for that. That'll be coming up soon. And with that, guys, that's about all I have for you today. 
Um, go and check out my site for the backlog. Like I said, dwtruthware.com and definitely go sign up for this Anarchapoco event. I think it's going to be a special one. They got a great lineup and I'm really excited for the presentation that I'm going to do for that event. And with that, guys, I will see you on Wednesday at Earth Chronicles. Uh, and I'll catch you again next week here on Truth Warrior. It's 2023. The gloves are off. We're going to cover every subject possible. And I hope it adds some value. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. Much love. Happy New Year. And we'll catch you next time. Cheers.